Amen. If your house has a gas furnace, you're familiar with the pilot light. It's the starter flame that triggers the bigger burner. The pilot light stays perpetually lit. It's what ignites the furnace when you crank up the heat. You can't fire up the furnace without the pilot. And the Jewish hierarchy couldn't kill Jesus without the pilot. Pontius Pilate. The Roman governor of Judea was the trigger they had to squeeze to execute Jesus. Over 10 years earlier, in 19 AD, the Romans had stripped the Jews of their right to capital punishment. Thus, a death sentence could only be handed down by Rome and its agents. Thus, Pilate was the pilot light. Pontius Pilate is one of the most infamous villains in all of history. He ruled Judea for a decade, from 26 to 36 AD. But for the 1900 years since, there was no historical or archaeological proof that Pilate even existed. That is, until modern times. It was in 1961 that archaeologists excavating around the amphitheater at Caesarea, they discovered an ancient limestone tablet engraved with the name Pontius Pilate. It was another proof of the Bible's reliability. And of those of you that have been with me to Caesarea by the Sea, you've seen the replica on display there. The original is tucked away safely in the Israeli Museum. Most of what we know about Pilate is from our Bibles, and yet legends abound. One story says that Pilate ended up overcome with guilt and committed suicide. Another story says that the Caesar in Rome became ill, and hearing of Jesus' miracles, he sent to Pilate, hoping to see Jesus. Pilate stalled in answering, since he had already crucified Jesus. It was a woman named Veronica who had followed Jesus to the cross. She wiped his brow with her handkerchief. And the legend goes that the cloth held a mysterious image of the face of Jesus. Veronica journeyed to Rome, and she handed the cloth to the emperor. Tiberius was miraculously healed, but he became furious at Pilate. He had the governor executed. You could say Tiberius turned off the Pilate. Well, Luke's account focuses on truth, not legend. And it begins in verse 1. Then the whole multitude of them, the Jewish leaders that is, They arose and led him, Jesus, to Pilate. Now, Pilate was a great enigma. He hated the Jews. He hated Jewish custom, but he often appeased the Jewish leaders to keep the peace. In fact, Pilate tried Jesus three times, acquitted him after each attempt, and yet still sentenced Jesus to death to placate the Jews. Pilate, you see, was the consummate politician. He was more concerned with posturing than with principle. Pilate cared more about the political ramifications of his decisions than he did their moral or spiritual consequences. And they, that is the Jews, began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. All three accusations violated Roman law, and could potentially get Jesus executed. 
Of course, the first two charges were lies. Jesus never perverted the nation, and he certainly paid his taxes. You remember once he paid the temple tax with a coin that he got from a fish's mouth. Pilate knew that the first two charges were bogus, so he locks on to the third. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him and said, It is as you say. Of course, Jesus never voiced any political or military ambition, yet he did claim to be king. He was the king of a spiritual kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And yet it posed no immediate threat to Pilate in Rome. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Romans tried to rule with equity and fairness. But they, the Jews, were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged, and as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. And here Pilate again acts like a politician. The governor passes the buck. Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, was ruler over the region of Galilee. He too was in town for the Passover. Pilate thought this is a matter for him to decide. Verse 8. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Now realize, Herod had no real desire to follow Jesus. He viewed Jesus as a sideshow, a curiosity, a circus act, if you will. And Jesus refused to perform. We're told, then he questioned him with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. Jesus said nothing. But in doing so, he spoke loudly, didn't he? In fact, his silence fulfilled a messianic prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse 7, had said of the Lord's suffering servant, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And yet Jesus' cold shoulder rankled the Jews so that immediately the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Sadly, the Son of God becomes a political football. And here, Herod punts Jesus back to Pilate. And as is often the case, these two men's resistance toward Jesus create an unlikely alliance between them. For we're told that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. For previously, they had been in enmity with each other. Well, then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. In Pilate's estimation, Jesus had done nothing deserving of death. 
Here he tries to pacify the Jews. Again, that's his style. He wants to take Jesus and scourge him or beat him. This was typical Pilate politics. He sidesteps the truth and he tries to strike a compromise. Let's just chastise him and then send him on his way. Verse 17, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. Now it seems the governors in Judea had started a tradition. The feast of Passover was all about freedom from bondage. So to celebrate, the governor would set a Jewish prisoner free. And Pilate was hoping to use this tradition as a loophole. He could release Jesus without calling the Jewish charges against him bogus. And they all cried out at once saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. And Pilate couldn't believe his ears. Barabbas, for all accounts, Barabbas was a terrorist. He was an enemy of Rome and a threat to the peace. Barabbas' goal was insurrection, upset Rome by keeping Jerusalem on pins and needles. If innocent people died, then so be it. That was Barabbas' philosophy. Surely the Jews hated this outlaw every bit as much as they did the Romans. Pilate thought they would never want Barabbas back on the streets. But on this day, none of Pilate's instincts will prove right. Here he underestimates the Jews' intense hatred of Jesus. For in verse 20, Pilate therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them, but they shouted, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And realize the Jews responsible for railroading Jesus here were the chief priests and the rulers and their leaders. This wasn't the same crowd that had hailed Jesus as Messiah the previous Sunday. Most ordinary Jews were still waking up after the Thursday night Passover Seder. Jesus' arrest and the phony trials that followed were carried out in the early morning hours, unnoticed by the masses of common people in the city. And then Pilate said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. Never underestimate the fervor of a religious prejudice. Remember, Jesus was a threat to the whole religious system of Judaism. They wanted him gone. Often, Christianity's fiercest opposition comes not from the state, nor from secular society, but from religion. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. And this happens far too much. It isn't truth and righteousness that prevail, but the biggest mouth the loudest voice. And so Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, Barabbas, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Now in Matthew's account, at this point we're told, then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. 
The scourging was the chastising Pilate had threatened several times previously. It was a savage beating. The Romans called the scourging the halfway death. A cat of nine tails with little bits of lead and ivory and metal embedded into the cords was used to slash the victim's back, to churn up his back into hamburger. Usually the lacerations were so deep that the victim's vital organs, his internal organs, were exposed and visible. Often a rib or a bone would fly off the body in the midst of the beating. At the conclusion of the ordeal, the victim was cut down and his body would hit the pavement in a puddle of his own urine and feces and sweat and blood. Many victims of a Roman scourging died during the beating and never actually made it to the cross. And those who were unfortunate enough to survive the scourging were made to carry their own cross to the place of execution, which was Jesus' experience. For now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him, they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. He was just grabbed randomly out of the crowd. Simon may have just been a passerby. He was from North Africa, so he likely had black skin. Perhaps he was on a Passover pilgrimage on his way to the temple when he just stumbles across this awful procession. He stops on the curb to observe the entourage and to see what's happening when all of a sudden the point of a Roman spear presses him in the back and calls him into duty. Ironically, Simon had journeyed to Jerusalem to draw closer to God. Who could have imagined that he would draw this close to actually carry his Savior's cross? And there's evidence that this Simon became a believer in Jesus. For in Mark's gospel, which was directed toward the Romans, Simon of Cyrene is further identified as the father of Rufus and Alexander. And apparently these men were known to the church at Rome. For when Paul writes in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, to the Romans, he greets Rufus and his mother as members of the church in Rome. It's likely this was the same Rufus, the son of Simon, who had become a Christian. Put the pieces all together, and we can assume that Simon was converted by this experience. He returned home. He led his family to Christ, and later they relocated to Rome. You know, this proves to me that seemingly random encounters can actually be divine appointments. God had a purpose for Simon. You know, when you wake up in the morning, who knows what that day may bring. God often uses chance events to alter our lives. It's also true that there was another Simon who a few hours earlier had boasted, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Now he's needed. But Peter, that Simon, was nowhere to be found. This Simon has to fill in. Verse 27, And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, 
Blessed are the barren, wounds that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Now understand, these were not the women who followed Jesus from Galilee. These gals were the daughters of Jerusalem who felt it their duty to weep and wail and stage a display of grief whenever a Jew was crucified. Their weeping was crocodile tears. And Jesus here tells them to cry for themselves. He sees into Jerusalem's future. Later in 70 AD, the Romans will crack down on the city's uprising with a vengeance. And Jesus is saying to them, if they'll do this to a man they know is innocent, what will they do to those who are truly guilty of insurrection? He's warning them. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. You recognize that language from Revelation chapter 6. This is what the Jews will say in the future, in the tumultuous time called Great Tribulation. At the end of the age, the daughters of Jerusalem will wail again. It's amazing to me that even at his crucifixion, Jesus was already thinking of his second coming. And he says, for if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry You see, in the terms of Israel's history, this was springtime. Opportunity galore. Jesus was there. The works he could have done. The things that could have happened for them. This is the greenwood, the springtime, when hope is fresh and alive and new. But if the Jews are so calloused at a time of opportunity, what will they be like when hope is dried up and the fires of judgment threaten? Jesus is here mourning their hard hearts. And then verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. Three crucifixions were on the Roman docket that day. Fulfilling Isaiah 53 verse 12, that Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. And when they had come to the place called Calvary. Calvary. Calvary is the English word for the Greek word cranion or our cranium. Calvary was the name of an outcropping of rock outside Jerusalem's northern wall. It looked like a cranium or a skull. The locals called the site Skull Hill. In the building of the temple, King Herod had used the upper portion of Mount Moriah as a stone quarry. The results was this rock formation. Today, Skull Hill sits right behind an Arab bus stop. Erosion and pollution have diminished the resemblance of the skull. A hundred years ago, as you see in the picture, it was more discernible. But even today, you can still see the eye sockets. This location has always been associated with travel. In Roman times, crucifixion was carried out by a roadway where as many local citizens as possible could witness the consequences of rebellion. Crucifixion was a stern deterrent. A main thoroughfare from Jerusalem to Damascus ran by Skull Hill and still does even today. Jesus was crucified either on top or at the base of Mount Calvary. For we're told there they crucified him. And in one short sentence, Luke sums up the most torturous, 
form of execution ever devised. They crucified him. Lethal injection, electric chair, firing squad, guillotine, even the hangman's noose were designed at their time to make execution quicker and less painful. Crucifixion, on the other hand, made the act torturous and interminable. Seven-inch iron spikes were driven into his hands and feet. Add to Jesus' ordeal the twisting into his brow of a crown of thorns. He was then hoisted into the air on a wooden beam, his body pressing against his wounds. Each breath required him to hike up his torso, pressing down on the nails, causing excruciating pain to ricochet through his body. Most crucifixion victims suffered for days before they finally died. Often vultures would arrive before death to start nibbling and feeding on the victim's flesh. The dignified Roman Cicero once said, the idea of the cross should never pass through the thoughts, eyes, and ears of Roman citizens. You know, official Romans deserving of death of capital punishment were beheaded, not crucified. Crucifixion was not for Romans, but for non-Romans, for slaves, for savages on the outskirts of the empire. And also crucified with Jesus that day were the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Which reminds me of the old pastor. He was in the hospital. He's on his deathbed. He only had a few days to live, and he kept saying, he kept crying out to the nurse, please call my congressman and my senator. I want to die in peace. Well, the nurse thought it was a strange request, but she complied. Well, when the two politicians entered the room, the pastor told one of them to stand on one side of his bed and the other to stand on the other side of his bed. When they got in position, the pastor sighed. He said, now I can die in peace. The nurse just had to ask. She said, Pastor, what does having your congressman and your senator by your side have to, you die, have to do with you dying in peace? The old pastor answered. He said, Nurse, now I can die like my Lord Jesus between two thieves. <laughs> Actually, we know from Romans 6, verse 6, the identity of one of the thieves. It was the apostle Paul's father. You remember in Romans chapter 6, he said, my old man was crucified with Christ. <laughs> we just need a little humor here. We just need a little humor to break up the tension. On the cross, Jesus will make seven final statements. To the repentant thief, he'll say, today you will be with me in paradise. He'll turn the care of his mother over to John. He'll say, woman, behold your son. And then he'll say to John, behold your mother. As the sky goes black for three hours, he'll cry in anguish to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His three last statements will come at the end in a flurry. The first of these three is preparation for the last two. For when he cries, I thirst, it causes the soldiers to moisten his lips so that he can utter his grand finale when he makes the momentous statement, it is finished. And in a last gasp, he'll breathe, 
Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Luke records just three of these statements, but he does provide us with the first statement Jesus makes, verse 34. From the cross, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And this is truly amazing grace. Jesus had compassion on the very people who were spitting in his face and pounding the nails into his flesh and screaming at the top of their lungs, crucify him. Here is the heart of God, friends. Father, forgive them. You know, from the Garden of Eden, humanity has rebelled against its creator. And yet God has kept loving and reaching and wooing and longing to bring the prodigals home. If these Romans and Jews had known God's heart, they would have never killed Jesus. They would have fallen on their faces in appreciation and praise and surrender. Instead, they remained blinded by ignorance. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Jesus wore an outer single-piece tunic. It was of some value, so rather than tear it into equal shares, the soldiers attending his crucifixion gambled it away. Think of the irony here. This is God, and yet they shoot craps for his coat. But it fulfilled Psalm 22, which reads, They divided my garments among them, and for my coat they cast lots. And then verse 35, And the people stood looking on, But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. What evil this was. Angry taunts came from both religious Jews and secular Romans. And what no one understood, and they won't understand until after the resurrection, was that God had deliberately chosen the way of weakness. I hope you know that power is always two-edged. It's a double-edged sword. Yes, it ends the suffering of some, yet at the expense of others. But love absorbs everyone's pain. And here God was renouncing power in order to demonstrate true love. It was once wisely said, the only ultimate way to conquer evil is to let it be smothered within a willing, living human. When it is absorbed there, like blood in a sponge or a spear into one's heart, it loses its power and goes no further. Jesus was the ultimate shock absorber. Rather than save himself, he absorbed the world's evil and he extinguished it with his love. And then verse 38, and an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, this is the king of the Jews. Typically, a wooden plaque listing the prisoner's crimes was nailed to the cross just above the head of the victim. The accusation against Jesus was written here in the three main languages of the first century, Greek, which was the language of culture, 
Latin, the language of government. In Hebrew, the language of religion. And it's interesting, all three, culture and government and religion, combined to crucify Jesus. All the passers-by that day were able to read the sign. And then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Can you imagine? This man joined in the jeers of the crowd. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice the thief agreed with Pilate that Jesus was innocent, but he goes further here. He acts on what he believes. He acts on the truth that he knows. He has faith. He trusts Jesus with his eternity. This is the difference between faith and mere assent. You can agree with the truth, but it takes more than that. It takes faith. It takes acting on your truth or the truth and asking something of Jesus. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. For Jesus rewards faith. Not just assent, but he wants faith. He wants us to act on what we believe. Now, it's interesting. The Greek term translated criminal means one who uses violence to rob openly. Understand, this man wasn't being crucified for credit card theft. He was an armed robber. He was guilty of murder and mayhem. On earth, he undoubtedly deserved death. But in eternity, he's given paradise. And why? Well, it had nothing to do with the works of his hands. They were nailed to a piece of wood. It had nothing to do with the places he might go and spread God's kindness for his feet were nailed to that piece of wood. And it certainly wasn't because he joined a church. Nailed to a cross, you can't go to church. There was only one thing this man could do and that was believe and look to Jesus. This was all he could do. But friends, this was all he had to do. For we all come to God by grace through faith. You know, whenever I read this story, I think of the boy's poor parents. They went to bed that night, and for every night thereafter, for that matter, thinking that their son was burning in hell. But you never really know what happens in a man or a woman's heart during their final seconds. There is such a thing as a deathbed conversion. I've heard it said, God included one deathbed conversion in the Bible to give us hope but only one so as not to create false hope. You may die in an instant and not have a final chance. There's no guarantee. That's why you need to come to Jesus today while you're able. And then verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. That's from noon until 3 p.m., Darkness covered the earth. You see, nature knew that something was wrong. The lights went out. 
Amazingly, it was midnight at midday. You recall in Egypt, Israel experienced three days of darkness prior to Passover in their exodus. Now on Calvary, the world experiences three hours of darkness as the blood of our Passover lamb was shed to set us free. And then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. It's interesting, Hebrew scholar Alfred Edersheim, he quotes the Jewish Talmud as saying that 40 years before the temple was destroyed, what he believes was the year Jesus was crucified, the temple doors miraculously opened of their own accord. His quote is from a non-Christian Jewish source validating Luke and the Gospels that the temple veil was torn in two. You know, it's interesting, though the Talmud interprets it as a judgment, the Gospels treat this event as a sign of grace. For in Christ, the door to God is now open. Access to our Heavenly Father is now obtainable. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And here Jesus quotes Psalm 31, verse 5, used as a bedtime prayer for Jewish children. See, despite his obvious searing pain, Jesus died peacefully. Jesus died like a little child curling up in his father's arms to go to sleep. Composure and peace still characterize Jesus even in the throes of death. And then verse 47, so when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly, this was a righteous man. Roman centurions, they were tough guys. They were the equivalent of our modern sergeant. They were the backbone of the Roman legion. And here was a man who knew men. He fought alongside other men. Sizing up and training men was his job. And it didn't take him long to conclude about Jesus that here was a man among men. He says, certainly, this was a righteous man. Matthew records more of what he said. Truly, this was the Son of God. I'm sure the Sarge said both. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. The dark sky, the convulsions of nature, silence, the mocking and the scoffing. Those who stayed to the end knew that something serious had happened that day. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Jesus had a few followers, particularly the women who had stuck with him to the end. But where were Peter and the boys? A-W-O-L. Verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member a good and just man. This man served on the Jewish Sanhedrin. This was the same body who had condemned Jesus to death earlier that morning. But apparently they had done so without Joseph's approval. For Luke writes in verse 51, he had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. Mark 14, verse 64, reports the Sanhedrin's verdict on the fate of Jesus. 
They all condemned him to be worthy of death. Their verdict was unanimous. Since Luke tells us that Joseph had not consented, we have to assume that he must have been absent earlier that morning. You see, up until this point, Joseph had been a covert Christian, a secret saint. John 19, verse 38, describes him as a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. You know, it's interesting to me that this crisis of the cross sent the disciples who had previously been open about their faith underground while bringing the underground disciples out into the open. The 12 hid for their lives while Joseph realizes it's time to come out of the closet. And of course, today, coming out of the closet is quite fashionable, isn't it? Every sexual attraction or gender dysfunction feels the liberty to identify and celebrate itself. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're an undercover Christian, I think it's time for you to come out and identify yourself. Be bold in your faith. Stop hiding your light under a basket. It's time to shine. Folks, people need Jesus. Well, this man, Joseph, he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And there's an ancient Jewish legend that preserves the dialogue between Pilate and Joseph. For when Joseph asked for the body, Pilate said, do do you realize this is going to be costly to you? Have you priced tombs lately? I mean, you're going to lose a brand new tomb. And that's when Joseph replied, ah, not really. Jesus only needs it for the weekend. (laughs) verse 53 then he took the body down wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb the Jews buried corpses under mounds of spices they wrapped the bodies tightly in a linen shroud and then they laid them in the tomb and Luke describes this specific tomb it was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before Often Jewish tombs were double or triple occupancy. In fact, the garden tomb just north of Skull Hill, believed by many to be this very tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, was actually cut out for four people. And it was a new tomb. You can see chiseling that was never finished. The tomb that housed the body of Jesus was empty when his body arrived, and it was empty three days later when he rose again. Jesus came into the world through a virgin's womb and left through a virgin tomb. Verse 54. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. Now, Jesus died shortly after 3 p.m. The Jewish day ended at sundown. Thus, the Sabbath began at 6 p.m., leaving little time here to prepare for his burial. In fact, John 19, verse 31, says that the next day was a special Sabbath. Some folks think that there was an extra Sabbath that year observed on Friday. If so, Jesus was actually crucified on Good Thursday, not Good Friday. It can be debated. What's certain, though, is that Jesus died and was buried. For the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after. Now, these women weren't the daughters of Jerusalem. The fair-weather mourners on the streets of Jerusalem. No, these were the devoted disciples who had been with Jesus from Galilee onward. And they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. 
Notice they observed the tomb and even the position of the body. These gals weren't caught up in the hysteria of the moment so that they forgot where Jesus had been buried. You know, skeptics often like to explain and say that the resurrection never happened. It was just a case of mistaken tomb that the women forgot where they laid Jesus. Not only is that silly, it doesn't fit the facts. Notice they paid attention here. They observed the tomb, even the position of his body. They were very careful to note all the details about where Jesus was buried and how he was buried. They would be returning Sunday to finish his burial. And then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now, within a hundred years of Jesus, at least 15 Jews will claim to be Messiah. Each one will flame, then fizzle, and eventually be snuffed out. The women in Joseph went home thinking that day that another flame was about to be extinguished or had been extinguished. They had no idea that in a few hours, just a few hours, the whole course of human history would be forever altered. As the poet John Donay wrote, Death, be not proud. For at that moment, death seemed victorious, but a new fire is about to arise from cold ashes. It's Friday, but Sundays are coming. And let me close this morning with a question that needs to be asked before we leave. Who was it that killed Jesus? Was it Pilate? Or Herod, or the Romans, or the Jews. Of course, they were all accomplices. But when we search for the smoking gun, we have to look deeper. For it was my sin, and it was your sin that nailed Jesus to the tree. Who killed Jesus? I killed him. You killed him. We can't pass the buck here. We're all guilty of killing the Son of God. Jesus died because of our sin, and he did it willingly because he loves us. And now it's our responsibility to make certain that he didn't die in vain. For we do that by humbling our hearts and opening up our hearts and surrendering our lives to him. Today, friend, ask Jesus to forgive you and set you free. And in doing so, you'll show your appreciation for his sacrifice for you. Father, we